book of Ecclesiastes. So I haven't listened to all your classes, but I suppose there's probably some things that stick out for you, um, having gone through the book so far. So I'll repeat these for those who are online at at Hyde Park, Enfield, or possibly even at home. But what are some of the things that have stood out to you from the book of Ecclesiastes? Just key messages. So they might be titles of the, the classes that have gone before, but what's, what's sticking with you? As like, yep, as a youth group or as a young person, this is a really important message starting to change my perspective. Life is vain. Meaning? Okay. So Luke Nichols said, life is vain, and there's a lot of things we do in life that are pointless, really. Good. <laughs> Thanks, Luke. What else has stood out to you from, from this book? There's no point to life without Christ. Yep. Of course, Christ isn't mentioned in the book, but when it refers to God, the expansion of that is his revealed will through his son. Yep. Good. Wealth does not bring you happiness. Good, even though there's a little sense in which it feels like it does if you've got it, right? But Ecclesiastes is saying it actually passes away real, real quick. Well, one of the things that I want you to have stuck with you tonight is just a really clear picture of what an old person looks like sitting in a wheelchair at Beth Salem. Because that is what Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is trying to drill home like no other place in this book. In fact, this is an extraordinary section to Ecclesiastes. Because through all the book, you might have felt, except for some sections, that we sort of bumble our way through thoughts and perspectives and reflections on life and challenges in life. But when you come to chapter 12, there's this, like no other place in the book, there's this really deliberate, specific set of poetry that has one particular message. And it goes all the way from chapter 12 to the end of the book. And I want us to really soak that in tonight. By the time we get to Ecclesiastes 12, so you think about all the the things you've said so far in in the lessons over the year. By the time you get to Ecclesiastes 12, you should have been absolutely convinced of the vanity of life. Right? And that, that came out in some of your, uh, your little comments. By this point, the, the author, the preacher of Ecclesiastes has convinced us that there's so much not worth living for. There's so many things that are here and gone tomorrow. In fact, if you, if you just come, I just like this as a, a summary. Come to chapter 3. Here's sort of the epitome of where this book has really headed us. Or guided us. On his uh, little poem on time, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. To everything, verse 1, to everything there's a season at a time for every purpose under heaven. And the opening line is classic and crucial to the book. There's a time to be born and a time to die. Now, the amazing thing about that, young people, as you know, is that your whole life is bounded by two bookends One's your birth in the hospital, or some of you guys might have been born at home or even in the car on the way to the hospital, and your death at the end of your life. Now, the amazing thing about that is those two times are appointed, and you have nothing to do with those. You have no control over those. 
in a normal circumstance. You have no control over the time you're born. It would be weird if you did. And you have no control over when the uncertainties of life may take your life from you. So the extraordinary thing about perspective Ecclesiastes is that your entire life is bounded by things you have no control over and everything in between is also like that. However, he's going to show us in this chapter that there's one thing you can take control of. There's one thing that you can grab hold of and erase every message that you've read in this book so far. So what we're going to do tonight is look at this message and see how his final closing message in this book reverses everything he's said so far on what it appears to be in life. And this is in your control. It's up to you. You can choose it. We've learned this book that meaning doesn't lie with wealth. Meaning doesn't come from your own experience in life. Meaning doesn't come from self-serving. Meaning doesn't come from having power or control over other people. And meaning doesn't even just come from good times. In fact, what he kind of says in a number of times in Ecclesiastes is death, in a sense, takes away meaning from all of those things. And uh, some of this is a little bit personal for me tonight, but death is no stranger to me. And I know there's young people in this audience who know death very well and what it looks like. When I was 13, uh, my best friend in Sunday school, his name was Michael Jennings, had a brain tumor. So he was 13 and he had a brain tumor. And I remember going through as a 13-year-old, seeing my normal friend that I'd, I'd play sports with, I'd go to Sunday school with, Sunday school picnics, play Lego with, go over to his house and swim because he had a pool and we didn't. All those things that we did together. And I remember getting the news that he had a brain tumor and it slowly changed his life. So by the end of it, after about six or seven months, he didn't look anything like Michael Jennings. And I was going to his house, not playing Lego or swimming, but helping him color in a coloring book. And shortly after that, he died. And I remember going to his funeral as a young 13-year-old, and it was just so intense to see your friend at 13 be lowered into the grave. It seemed so unfair. It seemed like it didn't make any sense. That was someone I knew. But another impact came upon me that illustrated to me something really powerful in Ecclesiastes about the seeming unfairness in life because of death. Because of death. Um, I lived about 40 minutes from Lake Erie, which is one of the big great lakes over in Ontario and Canada. There's Lake Michigan and Lake Erie and some other ones. And we used to go to these big sand hills uh, every year. As a group of young people, we'd hang out there. We'd actually, almost every Sunday after meeting, we'd jump in the car and we'd drive 40 minutes down to my grandparents' cottage and the young people would hang out there for the afternoon and come back. Well, we were down there one weekend and we decided just on chance we're going to go to these big sand hills, which was not normally where we went. So you climb over these huge sand hills and down the other side where the lake is and we just jumped down and rolled down and there's these big clay pits at the bottom. And we were playing in these clay pits like as we always do and a bunch of us decided to go wash off in the water, so we did. We, um, we left the clay pits that were right at the base of these massive cliffs and, and hopped in the water to wash off. And the next thing I remember was this mom who was so out of control. She was screaming her head off 
as, and we were all like, whoa, what's going on? We're in the water, we run out of the water. And then there was a couple moms that were just screaming their heads off. And we looked at these sand cliffs and there was this massive cavern cut out of the sand cliff that wasn't there before and a big pile of sand, like as tall as, I don't know, as tall as those speakers, maybe a little bit lower, where the clay pits were. And we suddenly realized that there was four kids under that pile of sand. And for the next hour and a half, we tried to dig them out and they all died watching their moms frantically panic as their kids died under a pile of sand in front of them. The airlift came, the ambulances came, and all of that. And I remember as a group of young people, we went home real solemn from that. And we sat around this picnic table, I can still picture it, and we just said a prayer. And we just were sat, sat there in silence, like, what just happened? And I remember that impacted me massively as a young person. Just remembering that life as a young person is supposed to be fun, supposed to be enthusiastic and energetic. You should be hanging out and doing fun things together. That's what Ecclesiastes 7 or chapter 11 says. But now and again, we need a powerful reminder that there's something far more important than just the footy that we play, the surfing that we do, the good times that we have, the career goals that we're looking forward to. And God brought that powerfully into view for us, that little group that, that Sunday afternoon when we watched as four kids died under that pile of sand as we were trying to dig them out. But you know, Ecclesiastes isn't just talking about death. You might think as a young person, as I did, that, that little experience sort of after a year or so started to wear off from me. It didn't really have a massive impact. I feel like it was a game changer growing up, but as you know, when you, when you experience things like that, they can kind of wear off and then you're back to your routine life and habits creep back in when you had resolves in the first place to do something. You don't always necessarily stick to that. And Ecclesiastes has come to the end and said, well, if, if death hasn't made an impression on you, I want you to think about old age. So you as a young person are sitting here, you haven't died yet. And you might not even be close to someone who has passed away as a young person in the last little while. But Ecclesiastes says, even if you are still alive, and even if you happen to have lots of years as a young person full of enjoyment and lots of things going on, you need to remember old age because it's coming for you. That's what he says. Come to chapter 11. So even if death hasn't made its mark, an impression on you in terms of a, a reformation in your life, and even if you seem to escape that as year goes by and year goes by, Ecclesiastes makes a final appeal for you to remember that your youthfulness will not last. Look what it says in verse 7, chapter 11. Truly the light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. However, if a young person or a man and he's talking directly to young people. This book is directed at young people. If a man lives many years, so escapes death, untimely death, and rejoices in them all, you've loved it, you've had a great time, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many, and all that's coming is vanity. Now, that's an extraordinary claim. And, and herein lies a little challenge to this chapter. How are we supposed to be thinking about old age and letting that impact us? 
as a young person. And that's what the, that's what the preacher is doing here. It's a final appeal to young people who's saying, now listen, remember, even if you don't think you're going to die and, and you haven't had that experience yet or someone else, don't forget that even if you do make it through, the end of your life, if you follow the normal course of things, which statistically most people do, will be just a slow, gradual deterioration and you'll lose all your sense of enjoyment and pleasure that you had as a young person. Don't forget, no one escapes that unless you die an untimely death. So it's not just death itself. It's the process of old age leading up to it. Want to notice what chapter 11 and 12 do. Um, if you've got a little pencil, it's worth circling this. Ecclesiastes says this in chapter 11. There's a few things we don't know as a summary to this book. Because you've got a pencil, I'll show you what we don't know in chapter 11. There's a few things we don't know. Chapter 11, verse 2. And I'm reading from the New King James, if it's slightly different um, to you. Chapter 11, verse 2. It's worth circling this. You don't know what evil is going to be on the earth. Got it? You don't know what evil is going to be on the earth. Number, the second occurrence is in verse 5. We're circling this one. You also don't know what the way of the wind is. Okay? And verse 5, you also don't know the works of God who makes everything. You can see the little theme coming through here. Verse 6, halfway through verse 6, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both will be like and what both will be good. You don't know. So chapter 11 is leading you as a young person saying you don't know what evil will be coming on the earth. You don't know the way of the wind. You don't know the works of God even who does everything. And you don't even know what's going to be good or bad or what's going to be the outcome of anything. You don't know anything. But you do know this, that you are going to hit old age and you are going to lose all your youthfulness. That's something you absolutely do know. It will happen to every one of you. What else do you know in chapter 11? One, you will get old, and you will have days of darkness come on you. And you also know, verse 11, that for all the decisions you make in your youth, God will bring you into judgment. Now, that sounds really harsh, and we're going to end with that. We're going to circle back to that concept of what is he saying here, because it sort of seems like, I used to read this as a young person, well, you know, have fun, do what you want, but just remember, God's going to judge you. Now, there's a sense of, a sobering sense in which that is true here, but verse 9 is saying, no, go and live your life as a young person and enjoy the pleasures that God allows you to do, but don't ever forget that God's keenly interested in what you're doing, and he's taking account of that. Not from a fear factor point of view, but because he's actually deeply interested in you, and he has a will and purpose for you. So Ecclesiastes says, you don't know all these things, but you do need to remember the days of darkness, old age are coming, is coming. You need to know that God will bring you into judgment for the choices and decisions you make. And you also need to remember your creator. Those are the things you can know. You may not know God's will or purpose or what's going to happen in the future, but remember those three things, young people. That's what God wants you to know. And to remember. Now, in order for you to be helped to remember that the days of darkness are coming, 
he, he puts together this poetry that some people claim, even people that don't read the Bible, claim that this is one of the most um, cleverly composed pieces of poetry ever written in chapter 12. So to help you remember your creator and to remember that you're going to be old soon and your youth is going to go like a vapor, he composes this amazing poetry. So here's what we've got in chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. Right? He keeps coming back to that. There's going to be difficult days. Don't think your youth is going to go on forever. And the years draw near when you say, ah, I don't really want to be around anymore. Life's too hard. My knees don't work. My eyes don't work. I'm just kind of getting old and tired. Look what he says. He illustrates old age in an amazingly poetic way. Verse 2. This might seem kind of confusing, but this is old age in poet, poet, poetic form. When the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds do not return after the rain. So remember God while all those things are still shining bright. The sun, the light, the moon, the stars. Well, before they're darkened out and they start to close down, that's when you need to remember God. What do you reckon that's talking about? Verse 2. What's the light? Before the light goes away and the moon and the stars, before they all get darkened, what's that talking about? Pardon? Maybe it's before your sight goes. So this is a description of what's going to happen when you go through old age. Before the darkness sets in, before the moon goes out and the sun starts to fade away, maybe this is you losing your sight. Maybe it's mental faculties. I was just chatting to an older brother whom I love. He's past 75 now, and he just told me this the other day, that it was around the time he hit 75 that his memory started going. And this is what verse 2 is describing. Remember God before all of that starts to close in on you. Look at this. When old age hits, this is the description. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down. When the grinders cease because they are few. Some people think that's a reference to old people's teeth falling out. And there's maybe dentures are coming in, the plastic version, Right? This is all a description of old age, really carefully put. Those that look through the windows grow dim. You can just imagine an old man looking through the window and not really seeing clearly. Verse 4, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird. I feel like I've been doing that more recently, but that's definitely true of old people. They just get up real early, usually, right? Young people tend to sleep in, but that's completely the opposite of a young person. One rises up at the sound of a bird. Most young people don't do that. I get it. And all the daughters of music are brought low. There's no, all the enjoyment, the, the music, the, all of that is starting to just dissipate and go away. Look at how beautiful this is, even though it's describing something, in a sense, terrible. Also, they are afraid of height and terrors in the way. That's a, it's an interesting way of, of saying that, you know, your grandma and grandpa don't typically go to the Adelaide show and, and go on those big rides. They, they can't handle, they're not even interested. It's just, nah, I'm staying in my wheelchair, right? That's what's happening. 
When the almond tree blossoms, here's an almond tree from Israel. So what's it saying? When the almond tree blossoms. Beautiful way of saying white hair. And I'm, that's like the weird thing is I'm starting to do that. I got a little bit here. I was just recently looking back to pictures when I first got to Adelaide. It's full black. It's beautiful. <laughs> but it's so weird that all these little white things creep in and um, my girls remind me all the time now. And I try and get a haircut to make it kind of just contain it a bit, but it just keeps happening. And the weird thing is, right, um, I just turned 40 in July, my 40th birthday. And literally like two days before my birthday, we're, we're just doing the readings at home and I'm getting this achy eye feeling like, oh, what's going on? So I went and got an eye test and my eyes are completely out of whack. Bang, 40, and I'm starting to, mm. it's just bad. So I've got a little pair of glasses. I didn't bring them tonight because I feel a little bit self-conscious. Um, just wear them at home. I don't bring them to school either. So, but it's weird. Like, I'm, you guys are like, ah, Tim's getting crusty. And what's actually happening is this beautiful poetry is happening in my life that I'm starting to just kind of tip over the edge. And there's older people here than me tonight. I'm not mentioning any names. Uncle Pete. Right? <laughs> but it's, a, it's amazing. Uncle Pete will testify. So will those like Uncle Brian Luke that I was talking to recently. Just showing that this is all, like the youthfulness was there, but now it's all starting to slowly go away. I'm not quite as far down that track, but look what else it says. The grasshopper is a burden. What? What do you reckon that means? The grasshopper is, grasshopper is a burden. Grasshopper is a burden. Lockie, what do you reckon? It's weird, isn't it? Pardon? Can't jump. And definitely old people can't. <laughs> okay? But I guess you can take, without drilling, I don't think this poetry is meant to be dissected. Some people have totally dissected it. Every sort of part of the, the body systems are listed in here. I don't know if it's meant to be like that. But the, you think of a grasshopper and it's bouncy legs, and this is... The, the grasshopper is just tired. He can't do it anymore. It's just this really amazing poetic way of saying that the old person is now confined to the sofa. And then look what it says. This is a really interesting one. Just, I'm going to throw it out there because it's interesting. It says, desire fails. Is that what the King James says? Desire fails? Yeah. If you look that up, the word desire is literally the caper berry. It's literally the Hebrew word for the caperberry. So obviously our translations kind of miss that, but this is what it literally says in Hebrew, and the caperberry fails. <laughs> now for us, the caperberry doesn't mean anything until you Google it and you realize that in this kind of time period and over in the Middle East, the caperberry was a berry that people used to eat to um, rejuvenate their appetites for all sorts of different things. Right? So what this is using in a really poetic version is saying that all of the desires, the appetites, the drives of this older person is just starting to nothing. There's no interest in all of those things. It starts to go. And then it says, for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. So finally, this picture ends with the person being dead. Heading to the grave. Verse 6, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken. And I think what that means, looking it up, is that they used to hold little lamps off of these kind of silver chains. 
And, and what would happen from time to time is that chain would corrode and it would, one of the little loops in the chain would break and it would break and the little light that's holding the oil would fall on the ground and just smash and the light goes out. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain. So someone's collecting water and they bring their, their water jugs and they filled it up and they're ready to take it home and someone bumps into it, it cracks and all water pours out of the, at the well. Totally useless. That's a picture of old age. Or the wheel is broken at the well. You can't get home. What does verse 7 remind you of? In case we are really unclear, where is verse 7 coming from? Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Where is that coming from? Genesis chapter 1 and 2, particularly chapter 2, verse 7 and 3, the curse that's given to Adam. Adam is told, Adam, you are going to return to the very dust that you were taken from. And that's what this picture is describing. But there's something else going on in here, and this, what tips us, this verse tips us off. We're not going to dwell anymore on this description of old age because there's something that God's woven through this description that hints at something bigger going on. And here it is. There's hints of Genesis 1 and 2 all the way through this passage. These are words, when you put them in this context, that become really familiar. Sun, light, moon, and stars. Those are all Genesis chapter 1. Clouds and rain. There's the firmament and the water above the heavens. There's the birds in verse 4. There's the trees that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. There's the grasshopper. There's the creeping things. And finally, in verse 5 and 7, man returns to the dust of the earth and the spirit returns to God who gave it. All the way through this beautiful picture of old age is a hint at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. There's hints at the creator that's in control of this. And the question that we're asking tonight, young people, is so what? Why is this in here? And here's the point, that even in the old age that's taking place on this person, God is in control. He's the creator. And this verse, or this little poetry at the beginning of verse um, chapter 12, verse 1, says, remember your creator. And he goes on and hints all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that God is in control. And suddenly, here's the point, suddenly we get to the end of Ecclesiastes and we start to realize that actually life is not vain. There's heaps more going on that meets the eye. There's a creator and he holds your breath in his hand even as you start to deteriorate as a young person, as you get older. Now, this is something I want to just develop for a, a few short moments, because I don't think we can come to Ecclesiastes without realizing what's going on. I want you to notice this. All the way through Ecclesiastes, and I haven't listened to all the classes, so I'm not sure if this has been brought out, but all the way through this book, the author keeps getting you to go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, three, four, and so on, all the way through the book. You, you look at all the little echoes. Just think of the early chapters of Genesis. There's a stress in Ecclesiastes on toil, labor, sorrow, and the burdensome task God's given to the sons of men. So I'm going to ask you, I want you to think about these statements. What's that referring to or echoing in Genesis? Some of them are really obvious. What's that echoing from Genesis, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4? That's Genesis 3, the curse. All this burdensome task and the toil that God's given to the sons of men comes from Genesis 3. What about 
He who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What could that possibly be a little slight echo to? The knowledge of good and evil, that certainly brought some sorrow, right? He says, Solomon does, the preacher in chapter 2, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. What does that sound like? This is a recapitulation of Genesis chapter 3, right? With Eve. Number four there on the screen, the condition of the sons of men, they're like animals, all have one breath that comes straight out of Genesis, that all living creatures have one breath that God's given them. They're all the same on that level. Here's some more. And there's a point to this, not just, a, oh, that's interesting. I want you to show what God's doing. For all his toil, a man is envied by his neighbor. Where is that coming from? Pardon? I think it's raining. Is that right? So, so I might not be able to hear you too well. Cain and Abel. That's exactly like vanity. Number six, two are better than one. I think you know where that's coming from. Genesis chapter two. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. In Ecclesiastes 5.16, we've already looked at that. To dust you shall return. Chapter 7, God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. That's the story of Genesis chapter 3, right? I don't know if you noticed this back in the earlier beginning of the year when you were covering off the earlier chapters, but really chapter 2 is the creation of Solomon. And he says, after all these things he's made, he says, Solomon says... I looked on all the works that my hands had made or done, and everything was a waste of time. However, when you read the creation account in Genesis, it says the same thing, but with a difference. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. There's the contrast to the creator versus Solomon or the preacher. However, that all gives us a grounding to notice what, to me, one of the most important elements of this link to Genesis. Does anyone know, and you may not, it's totally fine, does anyone know what the Hebrew is for vanity? The word vanity that's like we keep saying, vanity of vanity says the preacher all is vanity and it's over and over again. It's almost 36 times. What's the Hebrew word for it? I don't know if anyone's covered that this year, but it's intensely interesting. Pardon? Hevel. Or I, I don't know, yeah, is that Hebrew? Hevel? Yep. Yep. Hebel or Hevel? Now, when you think about this, it might make you think of something similar that you find in Genesis. It's 36 times in Ecclesiastes. It appears eight times in Genesis, and it's only ever as a proper noun or someone's name. Whose name is it? Who sounds like Hebel? It's Abel. It's exactly the same Hebrew word as Abel, right? Now, here's what I want you to just notice, because this brings in this whole idea of remembering your creator. Look, when you think of Abel in the story of Genesis, as a person, he captures every single element of the troubles and the vanities that you find presented in the book of Ecclesiastes. Every single one. But he also captures the essential message of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. How so? How does Abel, as a person, and his very name means vanity which the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes grabs and weaves all the way through his reflections. How does Abel demonstrate lessons found in Ecclesiastes? What do you think? He does remember his creator. 
in the days of his youth. Actually, I didn't check his age, but let's, I'm pretty sure he's a young man. He does remember his creator. Did it pay off? Did it pay off? No, Josiah says no, okay? I love that because it, on the surface, it seems like that was a total waste of time. He was envied by his brother and his brother killed him. And here's, you've got, you've got the first person ever to die in scripture is Abel. And he's a righteous man, full of faith, does what God wants, and he gets killed by some brother who's just jealous and angry and full of a root of bitterness. That's ridiculous. So here he is serving God, doing exactly what God said, and he dies. First person to die in the Bible. That seems pretty vain, right? And exactly, that's the point. His name illustrates exactly the vanity of life. However, was it all for naught? And the answer to that is definitely not. Do you remember what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 says about Abel? Uh, yes, what else? He, was, he, he offered a more acceptable offering, so he was more obedient whatever, in whatever context that is. He remembered what God said. Yep, what else? This is what it says. Thanks, Josh. It, Hebrews 11 says, he's dead, but he still speaks. How? How can he still speak? He's dead. And the answer is, it's his faith and his love for God. His remembering of his creator will never go away. And the context of Hebrews 11 is the resurrection, right? There is no vanity in Abel's life. It's only seemingly there on the surface. He dies under unfortunate circumstances. That's not fair. But the point of Hebrews 11 is, yep, that looks like vanity. But for him, it's not because he remembered his creator in the days of his youth. And he did what God wanted. He strove to do it. And that's the point, young people. The world around us totally seems like vanity. The whole book of Ecclesiastes says, yep, everything's vain. But now it's just turned the whole message and said to you, but it's in your control to change and reverse all of that. Your life will be totally meaningless if you never take God at his word. And it will. And it, by the way, young people, your life will be totally meaningless if you're never actually sincere about it either. You may look the part, you may proclaim to be Christelphian or a believer, a follower of Christ, but it's got to go a lot deeper than that. It's got to go down to your conviction, to your soul. It's got to, remembering your creator in the context of Ecclesiastes 12 is not just, oh yeah, God, and then go on your merry way. The sense of Ecclesiastes 12 to remember God is to really take him into your life. The Hebrew is to mark him and to set that as a goal. That's the sense of it. To remember your creator is not just simply recall. Oh, yeah. It's to take him into your life as the defining feature of who you are. That's how Abel illustrates what Ecclesiastes is saying about what it means to remember your creator. Do you know, young people, I'm, I'm going to share this because I, it's part of my story, it's part of my life, and it's part of my family. Only this past week, it's 10 years since a friend of mine and a family member of many others who were here passed away. I'm speaking of Caleb Luke, which is my wife's former husband. He went out for a run one night, and he never came back. 
And Kate was left bereft of a husband. And you might look at that scene and you might think back at that as we do as a family and as an extended family and with the girls and think, well, that's really unfair. And that's full of meaninglessness. And yet, young people, the only thing that redeems that situation is that Caleb feared God. He loved him. And I knew Caleb. That's the only thing that turns that whole situation on its head, no longer to a situation of vanity and meaninglessness, but the fear of God in someone's life, whether you live or die, whether you go, grow old and stuck in a wheelchair or not, is whether you fear God and keep his commandments. And that's where meaning pours into your life. That's what changes the whole perspective of someone who, fear God, who fears God and keeps his commandments. That's what it means to remember your creator. So let's read those verses. We're obviously not covering all of this section, but I want you to see the point of the matter. He comes to a conclusion, whether there's someone else summarizing it for him or he's doing it in his own personal reflection in third person. Look what it says. Verse 13. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Everything in this book, what, what is the final essence of what we're trying to learn as young people? Here it is. And it's ever so not complicated. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because the King James says, that is the whole duty of man. I actually don't think that's a great translation. I want to show you what I mean. But first of all, let's just look at this idea of fearing God. Because if I'm honest, as a young person, this is something I never felt like I got. What it, is it fear? Is it trembling? And then people say, no, it's just reverence. And then people say, no, it's a bit of both. And, and it's kind of a confusing discussion, uh, confusing, dis, confusing discussion. But what I want you to do tonight, I do not want you to leave tonight without some sort of practical idea of evaluating whether you are a young person who fears God and what that means and why we do it. Um, to me, it was one of those concepts that just kind of went over my head and I don't know. Yeah, fear God sounds like just, you know, I don't know, what does it sound like? So let's have a look at it. First of all, I want to show you that when it says fearing God and keeping his commandments is the whole duty of man, just um, I want you to notice that the word duty is not actually in the Hebrew. The word duty is not actually there. So you can just note that to yourself. Literally, the Hebrew reads like this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. This is your whole, the whole man is fearing God and keeping his commandments. Now, that's, that's seriously important. And you could say, well, it is your duty to fear God and keep his commandments. True, but it's far deeper. It's not just like, I just got to obey God in a mechanical sort of thing. That's my duty. Got to do it. Let's get on with it. No, God is saying there's something more here. Fearing God and keeping his commandments as a young person today is actually the greatest source of meaning you can get. And it's the real you that God designed you to be. It's not just your duty on the surface. It's the whole person. God designed you to do this. How do we know that? Genesis chapter one says we were made in his image. 
So God says the wholeness of you, the whole person, is going to find meaning and fullness when you fear me and keep my commandments. Which is why the fear of the Lord is these things. It says in Proverbs chapter 10, the fear of the Lord prolongs your days. It prolongs your days. Obviously, not necessarily literally, it's probably more speaking about in an eternal sense. Proverbs 19 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. And my favorite is this. Don't ever forget this. The fear of the Lord is not some sort of negative um, thing that you wear on you and weighs you down. Look what it says. The fear of the Lord, when you capture this as a young person, is a fountain of life. That's why we take the sense of Ecclesiastes 12. This is the whole you. Fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Now, some of you may have heard of this concept of the fountain of eternal youth. Has anyone ever heard of that before? The fountain of youth? It's a really interesting story. Um, for ever since like the 5th century BC, when it was invented, maybe even before that, people of all cultures and times have been trying to find this fountain that if you drink at, will give you eternal youthfulness. And they've never found it. Now the cool thing is, the Bible said a long time ago, to fear God is that fountain of youth. That's how I take it. That's what the fear of God is. It's like a fountain. If you drink from that, getting old is completely irrelevant. What happened in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is meaningless and irrelevant and has no bearing on you when you are a person who fears God and keeps his commandments. So here's, here's what I like to say about this. You don't stop aging or death. You can't. Now, people are spending right now in England and other places in America billions of dollars to develop anti-aging drugs. There's whole billion-dollar companies that are, that are racing to find the best drugs and therapies to extend your life by 30 or 40 years. And one of the biggest billionaires in England has put most of his money into it. Can't remember his name, but he is. And you can read about it right now. In fact, even the last couple months, they've made major progress. And the whole thing is to stop you from aging and to live maybe 30 years longer than normal. The Bible says, forget that. You will age. You will die. And if you get another 30 years, great. But it's still going to happen to you. So the point is, young people, you won't stop aging and you won't stop death but you can make them totally irrelevant. And that's what I want you to remember tonight. You can make aging and death completely irrelevant because they mean nothing when you fear God and keep his commandments because you have the joy and the hope of eternal life. That is the fountain of youth, to fear God and keep his commandments. That is the way to remember God. Now, I want to just show you something important about the fear of God. And I want to make it practical for you tonight. I want you to remember these four things. As an, I know acronyms can be a little bit cheesy, but this one has actually been helpful for me because the fear of God, when I think about it, is something like, oh, it just washes over. This is what I believe Scripture says about the fear of God. And if you want to know how to do it as a young person, if you want the fountain of youth, here it is. Let's let faith represent the F in fearing God. It all starts with faith. Did with Abel, we know that from Hebrews chapter 11. Faith in God and his son, Jesus Christ. 
trustingly believe even when there seems to be no way forward. Someone who fears God sincerely does that. A total faith in God, unrelenting let go or not letting go of God, believing that he is and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. The second part of fearing God, I believe, is this idea of emulating his character. Someone who fears God will try and show God in their life and respect his love and his mercy and try and show it. This is maybe one of the ways you can remember what fearing God truly means. The A, let's take as acknowledging him and his greatness in all of your activities. Just to acknowledge God. And this is maybe a challenge for young people. And this is why Hebrews, or sorry, Ecclesiastes is trying to drive it home. Young people, I just appeal to you over end of year. As you make your plans, as you go surfing, as you go downhilling, as you're texting and making plans, as you're hanging out online, as whatever you're doing, my challenge and Ecclesiastes' challenge is in whatever you're doing, whatever your activities are, find some way to acknowledge God in every single one of those. And that will drive you and help you as a group of young people to show the fear of God in what you're doing. Don't go through end of years without acknowledging him. And I mean, let's push it beyond just saying a prayer for the chips and the fish and chips that you might get. Let's make it so that when you get together with your friends and when you're together with your girlfriend or boyfriend, stop and think actively and explicitly about how you can acknowledge God together. Do it. Because that's fearing God is remembering him in your life. And it's not just a quick recall. It's bringing him in and making him the center of what you're doing as young people. That's my challenge to suburban young people. Let's be young people that actually fear God. Not in a trembling, um, cowering sort of way. We know that he's all-powerful. We move beyond that to a profound respect by having faith, by emulating his character to each other, by acknowledging him in everything that we do. And also, importantly, young people, to reject outright with full determination stuff that doesn't belong in the young people. Reject it. And you've got to have the courage. You've, have, you've got to have the love and the faith in God to say, that's wrong. I reject it. So reject it when you're with your, your young people over the end of years and someone suggests watching a movie that will not be God's will for you. Reject it. And don't be afraid to do it because this is your fountain of life. This is the only thing that God really made you to do, is to be full of this. And that's where you're going to find meaning. Nothing else has meaning. And suddenly we've come to the end of this book, and there's meaning in everything when you fear God. Rejecting sinful options and conduct is crucial to that young people. Have the courage, have the strength to acknowledge God and challenge each other to do that. Whether it's what you're messaging, what you're saying, what you're doing with your girlfriend, what you're doing with your mates, whatever it is, bring your Bible, have it on your phone, and make use of it to the fullest. It doesn't have to be big things. You don't have to organize massive meditations every time, but read God's word. Start praying more often together. Bring him into your plans and acknowledge him. He is your creator. 
It's easy, isn't it, for young people and all of us, but we're talking to young people, for young people to go off to work and forget their creator. You go to McDonald's and you're chatting to the people in the, in the lower floor as you're getting ready for your shift, and the creator goes out the window. KFC, Foodland, and you remember him when you come back to youth group. It's easy for young people to go off to parties and forget their creator there. It's easy for young people to get into a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend and forget their creator. That's why this message is here. It's a realignment of your life. It's a challenge to say, no, let's set this together. Let's have faith that God's with us. Let's emulate his mercy and love. Acknowledge that he's here and he's great and reject sinful options. The challenge from Ecclesiastes is to give meaning to your life. If you don't bring God into your life, if you don't fear him, your life is empty by definition. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. So yes, walk in the ways of your heart and in the ways of your eyes, but bring God in so that those ways of your heart and your eyes are purified by the choices you make, motivated by the fear of God. Young people, when it says this is the whole man, it truly means that your life will only have meaning when you have God at the center of your life. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 says in verse 12, I know, I know it's going to be well with those who fear God and keep his commandments. It's beautiful. One of the things I want to show you as we end off tonight is this, and you might can I just close? Yeah, just a second. You might think this is unrelated, but uh, I just find my mouse. I want to show you this. You're going you're gonna to see a picture of an old lady, but I'm just going to skip the slides. So don't be alarmed. Okay, I just want to show you this because we're going to end soon. Um, and this might think, well, what on earth? This is completely not Ecclesiastes, but it totally is. Let me show you. Um, there's something that happened in the history of science a long time ago that I feel is a brilliant metaphor or a mental model for what Ecclesiastes is telling us as young people. And that is the Copernican revolution. Um, Copernicus was a scientist or some sort of scientist back in the 1500s with what they had. And uh, the people before him for a long time had thought that everything revolves around the earth. You probably know this from school or history, whatever. So everyone thought that the earth was at the center of the universe and all these things revolve around the earth. But the weird thing is they started making observations of the stars and stuff and, and the facts just weren't matching that. It was confusing, it didn't make sense that the earth was at the center and things were, and they came up with these weird, like the planets must go like around like this and then do a bit of this. And things were just not making sense. So Copernicus, Copernicus came along, Nicholas Copernicus came along, he said, no, it doesn't make sense. And actually everything does make sense if it's actually the other way around. If the sun is at the center of the solar system and all the planets are revolving around the sun. And that started this massive revolution in science that said, oh, that makes total sense. And, and it starts to explain all these things that we're observing in our life. It fits into that model. It totally makes sense. Copernicus removed Earth from the center of the universe and set the heavenly bodies in rotation around the sun. 
And this is what I want to use this for. Ecclesiastes is saying, shift your headset from the fact that everything revolves around you because you will find no meaning. When you approach life like Solomon did in chapter 2, he tried to gratify himself with mirth and stuff and power and experience. If you go through your life continually with that mindset and things you try and find meaning out of things revolving around you, your life is going to be full of vanity. Change the model. If you live your life like you are rotating and centered around and drawn in by gravity towards God, then that is what we call a Copernican revolution in your life. It's the paradigm shift that Ecclesiastes brings its readers to. Fearing God and keeping his commandments brings complete sense to the universe and complete sense to your life. So the little challenge that I just want you to think about maybe tonight or write down is whether your life needs a slight Copernican revolution. Put God at the center and you will have much more meaning in life. Take the earth out of the center. Let me give you an illustration of someone who did this. Come to 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is a Copernican revolution. A great paradigm shift. Putting God and his commandments at the core of your life. So everything you do as a youth group and everything you say in your messages and all the things that you do as a group of mates revolve firmly around God. And that doesn't mean you have to do the readings every time you get together and that's all you do. Clearly not. Ecclesiastes says as young people, enjoy your youth. Enjoy the pleasures of youth and things you can do where your grasshopper legs are still working, right? But keep God at the dead center of everything. Here's someone who did. And here's the answer. First Timothy chapter 4, you know these words. Verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your youthfulness. But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Don't neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership, Timothy. Meditate on these things. Give yourself and your whole friendship group entirely to them. Continue in them, for in doing this, you'll save yourself and those who hear you. That's the Copernican revolution that happened in Timothy's life as he learned the truth, centered his life around it. The final note that we'll just touch on this evening that I want you to think about tonight seems really dark. Just read verse 14 to yourself of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, sorry. Just read verse 14. You might think that that sounds really harsh. It's not. If you read it in a harsh sense, you miss the sense of what Ecclesiastes is saying. Here's the point of verse 14, young people when it says God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil, what's the point? And he's alluded to this judgment earlier in the book. We won't look at those, but I've listed them there. This is the point. When God says he's going to bring everything into judgment, this is the final death now to meaninglessness and vanity. It means that everything in life 
does mean stuff. Your, your life is not meaningless when you come to God. He cares enough to take detailed note of what goes on in your life. And yes, it does matter what you choose to do with your short life, of course. But what this is sounding is a note of complete meaningfulness in your life. You can take courage from that, not cower away in fear and worry. So here's the final thing. The preacher, verse 10, sought out to find acceptable words. What was written was upright words of truth. It says in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads that you jab into the backside of a cow. And the words of scholars masters of assembly, are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And when you have a well-driven nail, you can hang heaps of stuff on it, including your entire life. So here's the teachings, both at the point. Be sobered. These words are like goads, and they're meant to be, to make us stop and think. But these words are like nails that you can certainly hang your life on and your hope and your certainty. It's not moving. So be sobered, young people, in your life, in your youth, but be greatly encouraged.